tonight. <clears throat> Paul's first missionary journey uh, started in Acts chapter 13. It's continued and concluded in this chapter, uh, chapter 14. From Antioch, Paul and Barnabas continued by journeying some 60 miles east to Iconium. It's a large and wealthy city. It's about 120 miles north of the Mediterranean Sea. And so that's what we're going to look at this evening as they begin to minister there in Iconium. And verse 1, and it came to pass in Iconium that they went both together into the synagogue of the Jews and so spake that a great multitude, both of the Jews and also of the Greeks, believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and made their minds evil affected against the brethren. A long time, therefore, abode they, speaking boldly in the Lord, which gave them, which gave testimony unto the word of his grace, and granted signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitudes of the city was divided, and part held with the Jews, and part with the apostles. That's always a sad thing, isn't it? When there's division, and Satan loves to put division in the middle of a family, in the middle of an organization, in the middle of a church. He loves to have that division there. Verse 5, And when there was assault made both of the Gentiles and also of the Jews with their rulers to use them despitefully and to stone them, and they were aware of it and fled unto Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the region that lieth round about. And we'll look at more verses as we proceed, but let's have a word of prayer tonight as we look at some troubles on the trail that these men had. Father, we thank you again for your word. We pray you'd help us uh, see clearly what you'd have for us to see tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. It came to pass in Iconium, they both went together to the synagogue of the Jews, and so spoke, and a great multitude, both of the Jews and also of the Greeks, believed. So Paul and Barnabas decided to go straight into the mouth of the beast, the synagogue. No matter that in Antioch the Jews had turned against them when they did this, Paul was bound and determined to take the gospel and to do so to the Jew first. So the Bible says they both went together, or they went both together. I love the fact that they're in this together and they're uh, unified in what they are doing at least. Uh, J.R. Stott said this, said some preachers are like Chinese jugglers. One stands against the wall and the other throws knives at him. They hit above his head, close by his ear, under his armpit, between his fingers, they throw within a hair's breadth, but never actually strike them. Uh, some preachers do that, don't they? They, need, they just get close, but they don't actually call anything out. They just kind of get around the issue. That wasn't Paul. Uh, he's hitting what he's aiming at, and he's going right into the synagogue, and he's going to go directly to the source, and he's preaching the gospel to them. And a great multitude believed, both Jews and Gentiles, the Bible says. They, the, <laughs> I like the words there, so spake. They so spake that a great multitude of Jews, this wasn't their abilities, this is what they were speaking. They were giving the gospel, and it is through the foolishness of the preaching that the Holy Spirit works. He empowers the words of his servants so that they produce conviction. Oh, I've seen it, and we've all seen it. If you come to church at any time, you see the, the uh, sometimes uh, preachers that can preach very eloquently and are great speakers and Nothing happens, and then you have somebody that just stutters out a message, and the altars are filled because it's the Holy Spirit that does the convicting. It's the Holy Spirit that does the work. Uh, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 2.13, It is not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth. I can tell you, 
we can get up here behind the pulpit. Anybody can and, and pontificate all they want to, but it's not going to make a difference in anybody's heart unless the Holy Spirit takes the word of God and applies it and does that work. So there was convincing speech. There was also contentious sinners. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and made their minds evil affected against the brethren. Here they go again. There is no bitterness like religious bitterness. There is no hatred like religious hatred. There's no, listen to this one too, there's no intolerance like religious intolerance. The ones that claim they are tolerant. This pattern followed the missionary activities wherever Paul went. It is amazing to me, and then it's not, because we know the truth, but it's just uh, fascinating that wherever Paul is, wherever Jesus went for that matter, it was the religious people that caused the biggest uh, conflict, whatever they did. The Jews heard and rejected the gospel. The leaders, uh, were, they were the leaders of the fierce opposition to it. And it's an amazing thing that when a gospel is resisted, uh, it is and, and rejected, it is often by the religious people. And then they want to go further than that. They don't only want to reject, but they want to do everything they can to stamp it out and do everything they can to get rid of the men of God. You know, I just recently rejected cookies from a Girl Scout. I've done that several times. And that does not mean that I'm going to go start a website, girlscoutrejector.com, and start a holding up signs where they sit at Walmart, you know, say no to the cookie and walk up and back and forth in front of the girls. I don't care if they're selling their things just because I didn't want cookies at that time. But it seems that uh, when it comes to Christ, you can't be neutral like that. You not only reject Christ, you do everything to stamp out what somebody else is doing for Christ. And we see this with the religious leaders here. Long, uh, verse 3, Long time therefore abode they speaking boldly in the Lord, which gave testimony unto the word of his grace, and granted signs and wonders to be done by their hands. The Jews were desperately trying to stir up a prejudice against Paul and Barnabas in the minds of the Gentiles. Now, this was offset for a while by the fact that they did miracles, Signs and wonders there. The sign gifts are still in operation here in the book of Acts uh, because the gospel witness is still going to the Jew first as far as, as up to this point. But there was still danger in the background. Paul and Barnabas did not care. They did not quit. I, I really believe, by the way, that if you're not offending someone, you're not really preaching. Somebody is going to get offended by the word of God if you preach it straight. You preach it right. They were not intimidated here. The Bible says they kept on their with their preaching, speaking boldly. Were people getting offended? Yes, of course, we're not out to offend people. But if you preach the truth, people are going to get offended. So long as the Holy Spirit was working in Iconium, there they would stay. I like what the Bible says here. Long time, therefore, abode they. They weren't wanted, but they weren't going anywhere either because that's where God wanted them. Then we see the divisions. <clears throat> the multitude of the city was divided and part held with the Jews and part with the apostles. So now what you have is all over town, people begin to take sides. Some are siding with the Jews, some are siding with the apostles. Uh, but Paul and Barnabas still labor on. They're still preaching the gospel, still teaching new believers, still organizing the church. They're determined not to evacuate this place until God moves them on. They're determined just to do their job. And you have to love a missionary or a preacher or an evangelist who does not let circumstances dictate to them when, or when they should move on or not, but they let God dictate it. must have been very hard on their nerves 
because all it would take is one wrong move, and they well, we're going to see uh, what happens uh, if if they for the opposition to have a victory here. Paul's attitude is summed up later in Romans eight thirty five. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Paul was determined to do his job as a preacher, as a man of God, going forward, and he wasn't going to let them stop him. Now look at verse 5 as we continue on through the chapter here. When there was an assault made both of the Gentiles and also of the Jews with their rulers to use them despitefully and to stone them. So the, the storm at last broke here, provoked by the leaders of the Jewish community. Now the word translated despitefully, used by the Jews to describe the treatment he would receive here, is the same word used in Luke 1832 that would describe what they did to Jesus. For he shall be delivered into the Gentiles and shall be mocked and spitefully entreated. Same word. The word means to insult, to act insolently, to shamefully act towards someone. The Jews wanted Paul and Barnabas to be publicly shamed and then eventually stoned to death. All this rage and passion against the gospel. It amazes me why people get so bent out of shape about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, we know it was, a, it was a big threat to their system that they had going there. Now look at verse 6. They were aware, or aware of it and fled into Lystra and Derba, cities of Lyconia, and unto the region that lieth round about. So the two missionaries evidently are assessing their situation here. They decided on what Shakespeare would later term, discretion is the better part of valor. And to stay at Iconium now uh, would not have been wise. There, they would have been. Uh, there would have been an outbreak of violence, and and uh, the new church would have gotten caught up with the violence. So uh, evidently, they decided that it was time to move on. So they went to Lystra and Derby. The total distance away was about thirty or forty miles, and there they found a hideout, hunkered down, hoped they wouldn't be discovered. Not on your life. Look what they did in verse seven. And there they preach the gospel. Isn't that something? He's not going to stop. Just because he's moving locations, he's got to leave here. They don't want to hear it here. And so he goes to another town. And there he starts preaching the gospel. He might be knocked down, but he wasn't knocked out. They could chase him out of Iconium, but they could not stop him from preaching. His motto, actually, he wrote in 1 Corinthians 9, 16, Woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. That was his goal. That was his motto. That was his burning desire. There was no place that Paul was afraid to preach the gospel. He preached the gospel in Athens, the intellectual capital of the world, and he was mocked. He preached the gospel in Jerusalem, the religious capital of the world, and he was mobbed. He preached the gospel in Rome, the political capital of the world, and he was martyred eventually, but he preached the gospel to his last day. Paul refused to be intimidated by opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And can I just encourage you, church, that we need to not be intimidated in a time that the church is pushed to back up or to back off. And, and there's, uh, there's almost weekly, almost weekly now, I run into someone, and uh, of course, you hear, hear I'm a pastor and get to, if I give him a tract or introduce myself, and uh, they're surprised, you're meeting and, you know, you're, 
things are okay, and it's, it's, there's a lot of surprise in that. And, and I'm not saying we ought to be reckless. By no means am I saying that, but I'm also saying we ought not live our lives in fear and constantly run away from the ministry of the gospel. There are still people that have needs. In fact, the needs seem, the emotional needs, I have never dealt with emotional needs like I have in the past six months. And I think Pastor Forsberg could probably speak to the same thing. The needs are great out there, and so we need to not, at this time, hide under a rock and uh, not propagate the gospel. And then number two, the danger here, uh, we see a, a danger of deification. There's a man that, Lystra here in verse 8, impotent in his feet, being a cripple from his mother's womb who never had walked. Now how is that for a hopeless case? The Bible restates it three times. He was impotent in his feet, he had been crippled from the cradle, and he had never walked. He was in bad shape. Paul healed him for the purpose of creating more interest for the gospel. The healing of this man is almost an echo of the lame man that Peter healed earlier. In the book of Acts, Luke constantly reiterates and shows how uh, Paul is every bit as much an apostle as Peter is. I think that uh, we see that throughout. Whatever Peter could do as an apostle, Paul could do as well. Look what it says in verse 9. Uh, the same heard Paul speak, who steadfastly beholding him and perceiving that he had faith to be healed. Paul, <coughs> Paul was preaching, and evidently in the crowd, he kept seeing this lame man. There's just something about the way he listened. Steadfastly beholding him. Uh, he drank in Paul's words. He was an amener. That's what he was doing. Steadfastly listening to him. He was supporting what Paul said. There was a sincerity about him. And Paul, having the spirit of discernment, could read his soul evidently to some extent. He saw that he had faith to be healed, perceiving the faith to be healed. His heart went out to him. And look what he does. Verse number 10. He said with a loud voice, Stand upright on thy feet, and he leaped and walked. Paul did this confidently. He did not dip his toe into the pool. He just jumped in full on. Uh, this, is, this is commitment when you say with a loud voice in front of everybody there, stand up and walk. Now you're committing yourself. Uh, it, this boldness evidenced that Paul was 100% sure the Holy Spirit was leading him to do this. That's an exciting thing to be that close to God to dared such a public demonstration of faith. What happened? He leaped and walked. The lame man leaped in response to Paul's command for the first time in his life. He had begun to walk and jump about. Can you imagine? He never having learned how. Uh, it was a miracle uh, that God allowed him to do that. Now verse 11. <coughs> when the people saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in the speech of life's like Caonia. Now, by the way, this is probably not understood by Paul and Barnabas because it seems it was in their own language. And by and we also see the the lapse in response to Paul and Barnabas. If they'd have heard them say this, they'd have immediately fixed it, but they didn't. The gods are come down to us in the likeness of men. Look at verse twelve. And they called Barnabas Jupiter and Paul Mercurius because he was the chief speaker. Jupiter was Zeus, the father of the gods. Mercury was Hermes, the messenger of the gods. Paul and Barnabas were seen as gods because of the miracle. 
And man, oh man, Twitter was on fire. Pictures were being shared on Facebook. Uh, posts were being put up everywhere. People were calling one another. Uh, they were spreading the news. And uh, again, it was in a different language, the speech of Lyconia there. Uh, it seems some time that Paul and Barnabas realized what was happening. Look at verse 13. Then the priest of Jupiter, which was before their city, brought oxen and garlands into the gates and would have done sacrifice with the people. Naturally, if they were gods, honor has to be paid to them. And if Jupiter himself was here, who better than the priest of Jupiter to come and bring the sacrifice? Here we have a pagan god, and you have pagans eager to worship him. Religion is, this, this, that's what this is, religion, pure and simple. Man is hopelessly religious. Man must worship something. Everybody worships something. Oh, I don't worship anything. A lot of people worship the almighty dollar in our society today. Everybody worships something. Often it's themselves. Everybody has to worship something because man is religious. These deluded pagans here, they represent millions of people in the world even today who are hopelessly chained by a false religion. They are sincere. They are passionate. They're devout. They're ready to do their religious duty, but they're lost. Now, not only do we see the heathen multitude, we see the horrified missionaries. Look at what verse 14, when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of, they rent their clothes and ran in among the people, crying out. All of a sudden, they realize what's going on here. These people want to sacrifice to them. They're dismayed. They demonstrated it by tearing their clothes the same way that the high priest, when he heard Christ affirm his deity, tore his clothes. Matthew 26, 65. That's what the Jews would do when they heard such, uh, or, or at the horror of the sin of blasphemy. They would see hear what they thought was blasphemy, and this was blasphemy, and that's why they tore their clothes. It was an effective way to bring this hero worship to a stop. Look what the Bible says. They ran in among the people. Greek word literally means rushed in. It's used only one other time in the New Testament when the Philippian jailer, fearing that all the prisoners had escaped, uh, he was uh, about to commit suicide. And Paul said, we're all here still, overwhelmed with relief. In Acts 16.29, he says, or he called for light and sprang in. Same word used there. What a picture of the two missionaries in here rushing in to stop this show. No, 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 no. They did not want them to take part in this at all. Now, healing was a sign gift. The purpose of healing was to open the heart up for the gospel. Jesus did miracles and healed people not for the end result of the healing. Now, can I ask you, what good does it do Lazarus today that he was raised from the dead, when he was raised from the dead. I don't know how long, but perhaps five years, perhaps 10 years, perhaps 15 years later, he died again. That was no eternal good. But a lot of people's heart were open to the gospel when they saw him raised from the dead. And so that's the purpose of Jesus' miracles. But uh, one of the problems is that people are often far more taken with the healing and the healers than they are the gospel that they are preaching. The same is true today. We are more enamored with the gift than we are with the giver. Romans 1 talks about those that reject God in Romans 1.25, who change the truth of God into a lie, 
who worshipped and served the creature more than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Every time I hear the terminology global warming, I think of this verse right here. Worship the creature more than the creator. They care about earth, and not that we shouldn't care about earth, but they care all about earth more, and they don't care about God at all. The creature more than the creator. Now, there were some conversions at Lystra, but none of them are recorded here because when people are of an earthly mindset, spiritual blessings are not realized. We see confusion, and we see that the gospel was limited. By the way, do you see why Jesus said, I'll in no wise give you a sign? Because when they're after that, rather than the truth, then that's uh, he didn't have anything to do with it. All right, look at this verse number 15. Moving right along here. And saying, sirs, why do you do these things? We also are men of like passions with you and preach unto you that you should turn from these vanities into the living God. Paul now launched into a vicious condemnation of this paganism. He called the gods of the pagans vanities. Uh, speaking of Jeremiah 8.19 Behold the voice of the cry of the daughter of my people because of them that dwell in a far country. Why have they provoked me to anger with graven images and with strange vanities? Might be what he was referring to. Paul was not concerned with being diplomatic. He was concerned to put an end to a bunch of nonsense that was going on here. Paul was not trying to be politically correct. He was calling sin exactly what it was. This, by the way, is why we fervently pray for our missionaries who are often working in pagan countries where idolatry is part of their local religion. If you see a missionary on our board or you're aware of a missionary that's in an area where idolatry is prevalent and false gods are prevalent, we need to lift them up in prayer fervently because uh, they, they, there's, there's always this question, should they step lightly around the issue or confront it head on? Here we have Paul. <clears throat> the boldest preacher might have hedged, but not Paul. He called their gods vanities. They might kill him. In fact, that's about what they're, that's what they're about to do. But he's going to tell them the truth. He pointed to the true and living God. There's a rising pattern today that concerns me. I was just reading about one this afternoon. More and more Bible-believing preachers are experiencing pressure by the leadership of their own churches, told to tone it down, not to offend anyone, to be more politically correct. Uh, one pastor in a Baptist church that I read about was told that he, uh, he needed to stop mentioning that they won't marry same-sex couples because that's becoming politically incorrect and it will make them seem like bigots to the world. Uh, stand down, tone down the truth, or be in danger of losing their ministries. Now, I'd like to say two things. Number one, if you have a preacher that preaches the word of God as the word of God is without apology, you have a treasure, amen? And a church that has a preacher, a preacher that has a church, like we have a Bible Baptist church here, I have never at any time from any leadership in our church have been asked to tone it down or to try to change the message of the Bible at all. We need to preach the truth, we need to preach it straight, and we need to keep the Bible what the Bible is and not try to apologize for it, amen? So I'm grateful for a church that we have, and I hope that we will never depart from that. Look at verse number 16. 
talking about the patience of God here, who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. God could wipe them out like he did in Noah's time. He could have visited the world with his wrath. That, however, is not what God did. He allowed nations to go their own ways, reaping the consequence of their sin. God's patience with the human race is often beyond our comprehension. Have you ever thought, I'm glad I'm not God? <laughs> I'm glad you're not God either. I'm glad I'm not God. Men blaspheme him and curse him. They blame him for the consequences of their own sins. They accuse him of coldness and callousness. They turn their backs on him, ignore him, and live as though he does not exist. They make idols of every imaginable thing and worship them instead of him. They serve demons and worship Satan. And instead of pouring out his wrath on the earth, he looks the other way. He turns the other cheek. He goes the extra mile. Now, we understand that's a temporary thing, amen? But he gives grace, allows people to have time to come to him. Such is the patience of God. The things I have heard some people say that make me want to back up off them slowly in case the lightning will come down. And it just amazes me the patience that God has uh, with people. Uh, the books that are written. Uh, think of the Richard Dawkins book, The God Delusion. Uh, Wicked, wicked, blasphemous book. Yet he walks around, uh, has all the, has anything his heart could desire, worldly speaking. Uh, God has grace, allowing time to come to him. And then uh, verse 17 and 18, he, he gives basically the proof of, of creation there as well, nature as a proof of God. Uh, and then we see in verse number 19, it's interesting here, eventually the crowd dispersed, the priest of Jupiter went back to his temple. The garlands are taken off the oxen. They return to their stalls. Uh, the whole incident was the talk of the town. The pagans were made to look foolish. Paul had insulted their gods. He had derided their religion. He had made a mockery of their worship. His message and his miracle uh, seemed to have been forgotten for a while. And uh, But now uh, he's preaching to them. He's giving them the truth. He's letting them know, don't worship us. There's a God in heaven. In fact, in May, in verse 17, uh, in, nevertheless, he let not himself without witness and that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, failing our hearts with, uh, failing our hearts with food and gladness. Uh, talking about what God has done, who God is, that they're not God, that there is a God. And he's talking about this, but behind the scenes, Satan is fanning the flame. Here's a chance to finally get rid of Paul. And I think it's interesting. Look at verse 19. And there came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium who persuaded the people. Again, this is just fascinating to me. Why? Why? If they think that Paul and Barnabas are preaching garbage and now they got rid of them out of their time, why follow them and try to, try to uh, tear down the message? Well, I know why. It's conviction is what it is. People are convicted by it. Why do secularists and atheists in America, why are they so bound and determined to, to close down the doors of churches, to take away tax-exempt status, to, to do all these things, to constantly attacking religious freedom? Why? I mean, if you want to believe, Brother John, if you want to believe in leprechauns, you can believe in leprechauns, man. It's fine with me. It's not going to make me any difference. I will lose no sleep if John believes in leprechauns. Uh, but for some reason, when it comes to Christ, and by the way, 
they'll say that that's a, that God's on the same plane as leprechauns. That's what they put him on. It's complete fable, and yet they fight against it. Why? Conviction. It's right in here in their hearts. They know that deep, deep down in their heart of hearts, they know there's a God, and they're trying to convince themselves otherwise. So here they come from another town, following. They're trying to. Uh, they, they're they're doing a a uh, uh, a campaign of misinformation here. They, they, uh, Paul was a menace to Judaism. When they drove him out of one place, he pops up somewhere else and he's preaching the gospel there. There's only one thing to do, kill him. And that's what they're going to try to do here. They get the Gentiles to do the dirty work. The Bible says they persuaded the people, convincing them that Paul was a troublemaker, not fit to live. Then look at verse 19. Uh, at the end of 19, or middle there, who persuaded the people, having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. Now that, that, that wording is interesting. And I did a little digging there. The, by the way, the Jewish influence is seen here, even though the Gentiles did it, the Jews, uh, were, the Jews killed by stoning, and that's what the, we see happening here. They finished with him, convinced he was dead, dragged his body out of the city and dumped it, leaving for vultures. The text says here, supposing he had been dead. Nemizo is the original word that is translated there, supposing. It's used 15 times in the New Testament. It means more than, the, than to presume. So when we say the word, I suppose, I presume, we kind of mean the same thing. This is more than that. Uh, it means to legally conclude from custom or evidence. The word is used by Luke concerning the Lord's ancestry in, in uh, Luke 3.23, and Jesus himself, again to be about 30 years of old age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, which was the son of Heli. Now, Joseph seems to have two fathers. Did you know? ever notice that in the Bible? In Matthew 1.16, it says he was son of jo Jacob. And in uh, Luke 3.23, it says he was the son of Heli. The, the word there means as reckoned by law. Jacob, or Joseph was the natural son of Jacob, but he could be the legal son of Heli only by marriage to his daughter, Mary. By the law of Moses, he could be reckoned, or Nizimo again, uh, the son of Heli. Luke uses the same word when Joseph and Mary are returning from Jerusalem. Remember, they're coming back. They hadn't seen Jesus in a few days, but they know that he's with the crowd. The Bible says, supposing him to have been in the company. Again, the word does not simply mean to presume. Rather, they reckoned him to be with the group. They had no doubt at all that Jesus was with the group, so they were continuing forward. Luke uses the word again in Acts. Again, with the Philippian jailer, sure that his prisoners had escaped. Sure enough that he was going to kill himself over it. That's how sure he was. Seeing the prison doors open, he drew his sword, would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had fled. I'm saying all that to say there was little doubt here that Paul was dead. This wasn't just a, oh, I think he's dead, drag him out of town. They were, they were sure he was dead. Uh, was he? Probably. That's up for some debate. If you want to get ten different opinions, look at ten different commentaries and you'll get them. <laughs> There's different people think different things. I happen to believe he was dead. I think he referred to it later when he said it was in the third heaven. Uh, but no matter if he was or not, this is a miraculous thing because even if he wasn't dead, he was badly injured. And next week when we come back, we'll find out what happens next here in Paul's 
Life. You say, life? I thought he's dead. Well, hold on. He's not quite done. Paul's going to continue on. The lesson to take from this week, though, is let's not get discouraged when society is against us. If the word of God upsets people, let us not apologize for it. Now, we need to not, uh, we need, of course, not try to offend or be offensive. Ephesians 4.15, but speaking the truth in love. That's how we ought to deal with it. Let people know the truth, but let them know it in love. Being found faithful in this area of our ministry, constantly keep giving the message of the gospel. In your Christmas communique, whether it be Christmas cards or family letters sometimes that people put out, include the gospel, include the truth. Put a gospel tract in there with it. There is no shame in standing for right, even in the midst of your own family and friends. So let's be found faithful in that. Paul certainly was to the point that Get, well, I, okay, I'll let you have a little preview. Guess what Paul does after he gets up from being stoned? He preaches, amen. Guy with the leprechauns, say he nails it. That's right. He preaches, keeps right on at it. He's going to be faithful. Father, help us.